Aurora of the Yukon, Chapter 6, My Birthday on the Chilkoot Trail The boys on the Chilkoot Trail act pretty tough, but they don't have to hike in a skirt. My Diary, Sheep Camp on the Chilkoot Trail, July 29th, 1898 Boy, did I ever get in trouble when my mom recovered from fainting. Tu n'es pas la héroïne de Skagway. Héroïne, plutôt une petite fille très méchante. Eve immediately translated it for the reporter from the Skagway News. She's not the heroine of Skagway. She's a very naughty little girl. The reporter had come to our tent after the gunfight to interview me. You see, after the gunfight, everyone started calling me a heroine for warning Mr. Reed what Soapy Smith's gang was going to do. I even got Mr. Reed's gun for him. But Maman just shouted in French at the reporter and the other people until they went away. Then she grounded me. She was so upset that she told me I'd have to stay in our tent for the rest of the gold rush. She was very worried that I might have been hurt, of course, but I was pretty mad at her. If you hadn't given all our money to Soapy Smith, I wouldn't have had to steal it back. That's when she said the gold rush was too short and I was grounded forever. Anyway, I spent the next few days in our tent doing grammar exercises and reading. Even D'Artagnan played in the field outside, which was very annoying. Some nice people brought some books about the Chilkoot Trail and the Yukon for me. The books were very interesting. One was called The Klondike and All About It. It was from New York. It had a list of women's supplies at the back. I noticed we didn't have very many of these things on the list. Like three gingham aprons that reached from neck to knees. One of the things listed was even a man who takes a necessary camping outfit and food along. We definitely didn't have one of those. You don't need a man, said Eve. For once I agreed with him. You've got me. He went on, not quite understanding what I meant. Mama couldn't read the English words, but told me not to worry. I kept worrying anyways and wrote the list into my diary. The other books were interesting too. The funny thing about the Chukut and the Yukon is that very few people had ever been there before the gold rush. So when the gold rush started, people didn't know what to bring or how to live in the North Country. This doesn't count the native people, of course. They had been in Alaska and the Yukon for thousands of years and knew all about the place. Not that very many white people bothered to ask them. The worst story I read was about some miners in the Yukon who ran out of fresh food. All they had to eat was bannock, which is a kind of Yukon pancake you make from flour. Pretty soon, they got scurvy from not having any fresh fruit or vegetables. Scurvy makes your gums bleed and your teeth fall out. It can even kill you. By the end of the winter, they were in rough shape. Some native people told them to make tea from the spruce tree needles all around their cabin, but the miners didn't listen to them. When the miners finally went to the hospital in Dawson City, they had hardly any teeth left. They must have felt pretty silly when the doctor told them the same thing the native people had. Can you imagine? Losing your teeth to scurvy when you were living in the forest surrounded by millions of trees, not knowing that the spruce needles could save you? I learned a lot about the Chilkoot while I was grounded. It starts at Dai. It goes 33 miles to Lake Bennett in Canada. That doesn't seem very far if you're used to traveling by train, but it's a different story if you are walking. The trail goes up more than 3,500 feet onto the mountains from the beach. That's just the pass, which is the part you walk through. The mountains on the other side are twice as high. And not only is it long and steep, but the trail is very rough. In fact, there is no trail at some places. At the Golden Stairs, which is the steepest part, you just have to crawl over huge rocks that the ice has broken off the mountains. The day before we were supposed to leave, one of Mr. Reed's friends came over to help us. Her name was Tina. She had blonde hair and bright blue eyes. But the first thing you noticed was the biggest smile I've ever seen. She was so friendly. Mrs. McGregor was friendly too, but in a quieter way. I don't know how to describe it, but Tina was Alaska-friendly. She really knew about Alaska and the Yukon. She even had a necklace that her husband had made for her out of 10,000-year-old mammoth ivory. Do you know what that is? It means it is the tusk of an Alaskan elephant that lived before the Big Ice Age over 10,000 years ago. It was carved into a beautiful shape like a whale's tail. Anyway, Tina helped Mama organize her dad, Paul, to take us to Dai in a boat. 
Dai is the town beside Skagway, where the Chilkoot starts. Tina and Paul also arrange for two packers to meet us at the dock at Dai. Packers are men who carry the heavy stuff over the Chilkoot. People like Jack London carried all their own things over the Chilkoot, but packers usually held people who weren't as strong. But you should have seen Tina's face when she saw what we had packed. Three trunks, she exclaimed. You'll never get those over the Chilkoot. And then, when she saw what was inside, she was horrified. Six dresses but no winter boots? Well, Aurora, you just tell your mamma that this isn't going to work. I showed Tina our book, Klondike and all about it. Tina took one look and exclaimed, Three gingham aprons? New York nonsense. She tossed her book into the fireplace. That makes you load one pound lighter already. Tina's dad, Paul, just laughed. I'll show Eve a few card tricks while your ladies repack the gear. I think Paul had been stuck in lots of snowstorms and cabins with nothing to do, and playing cards is a good way to pass the time. Mama didn't approve of cards, of course, but she didn't say anything. We had bigger problems at the moment. While Paul taught Eve a few card tricks, Tina, Mama, and I went through our three trunks. Tina said we had to be ruthless, which means making hard decisions about leaving behind things we liked. Tina didn't speak French, so I had to translate most of the talking. The first thing is boots. If you wear those fancy shoes, you won't even make it to sheep camp. Tina told Paul and Eve to put down the cards and see if a friend of hers had better boots for us. Then we went through everything and put it in three piles. Definitely needed, definitely not needed, and maybe, if we have enough room left over at the end. Pretty soon, the definitely not needed pile was very big. Blouses, nice dresses, our church hats. Mama had first said she wouldn't give up a couple of her dresses. I hated to see my nice red dress on the definitely not needed pile. We kept sneaking things back into the definitely needed pile, but Tina would usually catch us. Better to leave it here than carry it halfway up the Chilkoot and throw it out there, she said. Tina also said that we needed a fourth pile, which was stuff you'll freeze to death without but don't have any of. She made a list. It included winter boots, wool hats, mitts, and good sleeping bags. That was stuff we would need in the winter. She also made a list of the things we would need on the Chilkoot, like food, a pot to cook it in, and matches to light the campfire. Paul and Eve came back with boots, as well as backpacks to replace the trunks. We had two packs for the packers we were going to hire. They both weighed 100 pounds. There was a 25-pound pack for Mama. I don't think she'd ever carried a backpack in her life, and it made her sway back and forth like a tree with too much snow on the top. My pack weighed 5 pounds. It just had my jacket, a metal canteen full of water, my favorite little doll, a book, and my diary. They tried to take my book and diary away, but I snuck them back in. Paul even gave us a pack for D'Artagnan. Mama was hoping that D'Artagnan could carry some stuff from the maybe pile, but after we put his food in there, there was only a little bit of space left. A friend of Paul's named Isaac Taylor came by. He was originally from England, but had come to Alaska from another gold rush in Australia. He had a couple of small bells he wanted to give us to scare the bears away. He tied one bell to D'Artagnan's collar, and another on my pack. Eve didn't have to carry anything except his sword. He was too little. I snuck his musketeer hat into my pack. The next day, Tina gave one of Mr. Hershey's milk chocolate bars to Eve and me. Then Paul and Isaac took us to Dai, where we met our packers. Our first packer was named Red McGraw. He was from Arkansas. He looked just like you would expect a tough man from Alaska to look, although I wondered right away if we could trust him. We worried about that with everyone after Mr. Cicero. The other packer was a fellow from the Tlingit tribe, although you actually say it as if you spelled it Klingit. I couldn't pronounce his real name, so he just told us to call him Skookum. This is a Klingit word that means very strong. Skookum had his niece with him. He was taking her across the pass to her grandmother somewhere in the Yukon. She was about my age. The English name she used was Louise, and she had beautiful black hair and dark brown eyes with a twinkle in the corner. We were too shy to talk to each other at first, but I could tell we would be friends. Louise was very polite and said, how do you do, to my mother, when we were introduced. She spoke no French, but her English was pretty good. 
She and Skookum spoke Klingit. We started at ten in the morning. Louise led the way, with Red and Skookum right after. The first stop on the trail was Finnegan's Point. It was about five miles. Some people go there directly by boat, up the Taya River, but Mama said something about how expensive it was, so we walked. It seemed like we walked forever. Mama said that the trail seemed more like a deer trail than a people trail. Mama, we're in Alaska. My book says Alaska has more moose than deer. Her mouth opened to tell me to be quiet about my book, but instead her foot disappeared into a huge mud hole and she fell over. The mud was so thick it took Louise and me to get her leg out. The mud made a giant gloop sound when her foot finally reappeared. Without her boot, it took us five minutes to dig out her boot and wash it. Mama wasn't very happy. Her boot made a squelching sound with every step and she looked funny with one leg colored mud brown. We kept walking on the trail up the Taya River. Sometimes we would walk in silence, just our boots and the bear bells to listen to. Other times we would sing songs or just talk. Hiking the Chilkoot seems to make it easy to talk. You have lots of time. Once, after a long silence, Eve suddenly said, Red, my dad is in heaven. Eve says things like that sometimes, out of the blue. Mama didn't hear him and no one else said anything for a while. Then Red said, My daddy went out for cigarettes when I was eight and never came back. Did he get lost? asked Eve, very concerned. Don't think so. Then why didn't he come back? Don't know. Maybe because of me and my sister. Maybe because we were so poor. Where is he now? Don't know, but if I find him in the Yukon, I'll knock him down. That kept Eve silent, but just for a minute. My daddy gave me a hug before he went to heaven. This made me start to cry. I remembered that day. It was the day the letter arrived from Uncle Thibault in the Yukon. Papa was lying in bed with his skin as white as the sheets, but Eve wasn't crying. He was just telling Red what happened back in Montreal. Red thought about what Eve had said for a while. You're a lucky boy, kid, was all he said. After Finnegan's Point, the river was too fast and rocky for boats. The problem was that the mountains went straight down into the river, so usually there was no shore along the river. Just mountains, going straight up. So the trail had to climb up over big rocks and giant trees. Other Chilkooters had tried to make steps in some places, but sometimes the trail was so steep that Eve had trouble climbing up. There were lots of people on the trail. Either they were carrying light packs and headed for Dai, usually with smiles on their faces, or they were headed to the Yukon with huge packs. There were also horses, mules, and every kind of dog you could imagine. The animals didn't look healthy, like you see in the city. They looked skinny and sort of sad. It was almost all men we passed. They were usually surprised to see a woman. They would take off their hats and say something like, Good morning, ma'am, to Mama. I think they were much politer on the trail than they would have been if we'd been in Skagway. Mama would always reply very politely in French. Sometimes, the men would stop and talk to us. They were even more surprised to see kids. They would tell us about the trail ahead and would ask us if the water in the creeks was high. Or they would ask us if Soapy Smith was still robbing everyone in Skagway. One time, we started telling some men about the gunfight. Before we knew it, there were 30 men listening to Red and I tell the story of Soapy Smith and Frank Reed. I didn't tell them about me being called the heroine of Skagway, since that seemed like bragging. Red was different. He wasn't even at the gunfight, but he managed to make everyone think he was one of Frank Reed's best friends. When we were done our story, one man kept talking to us. His name was Percy Brown, and he said he was a major. Red told me later that he had a fancy English accent like the Prince of Wales. He wore an expensive coat that had a special leather pad on the shoulder for resting your rifle against when you were shooting. He also had strange short pants with boots and stockings. Best of all was his hat, which was like you see in pictures of the British Army in Africa. One of Skookum's cousins and six other Klingit porters were carrying his gear. He had a large number of strangely shaped cartons marked British Museum, not to mention four different fishing rods. Madame, he said to Maman, I do not believe it is dignified for a woman to travel the Chilkoot Trail unaccompanied, especially with impressionable miners. I insist on escorting you back to the city at once. Percy used so many big words, I filled up a whole page in my diary writing them down.
Dignified means proper, and impressionable minors means kids who might see things they weren't supposed to. When he found out my mom didn't speak English, he said it again in French. Very proper French, in fact. It is even easier to speak down to someone in French than in English. He sounded like a schoolmaster talking to a poorly behaved student. My mom was surprised for a moment. Then she got mad. She looked him right in the eye and said in her most proper Montreal French, Monsieur, this family will be dignified wherever it goes, and that includes building a new life at our lodge in the Yukon. I was proud of her. Percy was so surprised he didn't say anything for a second. And when he tried to, another man interrupted. Ma'am, he said, I don't know what you said, but it sounded like the right thing to me. He stepped right in front of Percy and held out his hand to help Mama up from the stump she was sitting on. He introduced himself as Joe Boyle and said he was headed back to Skagway to get more supplies for his mine in Dawson. But I'd be happy to help carry your pack for a few miles toward the summit. He was big, handsome, and a very strong man. He put down his pack by the side of the trail, picked up Mama's, and we started walking. Five minutes later, he had Mama's pack, my pack, and Eve on his shoulders too. We all liked him right away, even Mama. He was one of those people you feel like you've known your whole life. I told him what Mama had said to Major Brown. Well, that sounds right to me. It's how you act that makes you dignified, not whether you're in the big city or properly escorted. He said properly escorted in the same sort of English accent as Percy Brown. He was really good at English accents and told us all about Dawson City as if he was Percy. Louise and I laughed and laughed. After about two hours, we got to a good resting spot. Well, I'd better turn around and go get my pack, he said. Otherwise, I'll be sleeping outside with the bears tonight. We all thanked him. Just one question before we go. Now tell your mother that I don't mean to be like Percy the Piccadilly dude, but could you ask her why she's taking two kids into some of the toughest country there is? I explained about Uncle Thibault and the lodge. He seemed skeptical. Never mind your uncle. Ask her what the real reason is. I translated for Maman. She waited for a second and looked at me, and then at Joe Boyle. I think sometimes being out in a place like the Chilku Trail lets you answer questions you never would at home. Because being poor and trapped in East End Montreal is no way for these two to grow up, she said. Joe considered this for a minute. Then he smiled and tipped his hat to Mama. Then he turned to me and told me something I'll never forget. Remember this, Aurora. In the North Country, the only thing that can stop you is you. You don't have to worry about being poor, being dignified, being a girl, or being whatever. You'll know what to do. He turned and walked down the trail. As he turned the corner, he looked back and shouted, Just don't let being heroin of Skagway go to your head. I've never figured out how he knew about that. It was a lot less fun walking without Joe Boyle to entertain us. Mama and I were scared of bears the whole time, although Eve said he wanted to see one. Louise told us not to worry. There were so many people in the Chilkoot that all the bears had been scared off. I hoped she was right. I was glad we had D'Artagnan and our bells. We made sure to make lots of noise so we wouldn't surprise any bears busy eating berries. Sometimes the trail was so steep it went along little cliffs. Mama wouldn't let Eve go by himself. She would hold his hand. Other times the trail would go down through swamps. A couple of times we had to walk right through creeks. There was no bridge. Or if there had been, the floods when the snow had melted had wrecked the bridge. Red called this fording. We would stop and take off our boots and socks. Then Mama would put our socks on the top of her pack, and we would put our boots back on. This was because you couldn't go barefoot across the creeks. They were too rocky. When you stepped into the creek, the icy water would fill up your boots like lightning. The water was coming from melting glaciers out of sight at the top of the mountains. It was so cold, it felt like your feet were burning, even though it was actually cold. Eve asked me if the water was so cold that it would freeze solid if the creek bottom flattened out and the water didn't move as fast. You had to be very careful. Even if it didn't seem steep, the water was moving so fast that it would pull at your feet. Mama fell once, and I did two or three times because I was smaller. Plus, twice my skirt had got caught on a stick and tripped me up. Eve held onto Mama's hand and was okay, even the time Mama fell. Then, on the other side of the creek, you would pour the water out of your boots and put your socks back on. 
Red told us to be careful not to get sticks or sand inside our socks, because then we would get blisters. Your socks would get wet as soon as you put your wet boots on, but they were still drier than if you wore your socks across the creek. Once we walked across a swampy part, it was flat and there was a little sidewalk that someone had made out of boards. This is called a boardwalk. It is to keep your boots from sinking deep into the mud. But the problem was that a beaver had built a dam across the creek. The whole area was flooded. So we walked across the boardwalk, but up to our knees in water for five minutes. After a few scrambles and falling in a creek for the third time, I decided it was time to change out of my skirt. It was always getting in the way. And Louise and Eve seemed to be having a much easier time in pants. I would just wear my long underwear, I decided. This would be much more sensible. Louise held up a jacket for privacy, and I quickly changed. I put my skirt in my pack, put on my long underwear, and then put my boots back on. It felt very comfortable. Louise gave me the thumbs up sign. Of course, when my mom saw me standing there in my long underwear pants and big muddy boots, she nearly fainted again. She made me put on proper clothes again, which meant a skirt. Louise and Skookum talked to each other in Klingit. I think they thought we were very silly. It was sunny the whole time, but you could hardly tell. This was because the Alaskan trees are so tall. They branch out over your head, and their branches form a canopy, which is like a roof for the forest. There were only a few holes where you could see the sun. Underneath the canopy, it was very wet. Red and Skookum sweated a lot, but it would never dry. Pretty soon, their shirts were completely soaked. Plus, it had rained the night before. Lots of flowers and plants called ferns grew along the trail. Their leaves were very wet, and as you walked along, they would brush against your clothes, so you would be completely wet as if it was raining. When we rested, Louise would show us different kinds of plants. She knew most of the English names, even though Mama and I didn't even know the French ones for them. It was very interesting. There was the Sitka spruce and the cottonwood tree. Then there were beautiful purple flowers called monkshood or wolfsbane. This is actually deadly poisonous. Then there were lots of different kinds of berries. Worst of all was Devil's Club, which is a big green plant with leaves sort of like a maple tree. But if you touch it, it gives you a terrible rash. There were also lots of kinds of strange mushrooms and fungus. Some grew out of trees sideways. I thought they looked like fairy balconies. Louise didn't know what a fairy was, so I explained all different kinds to her. She knew about the saints from the missionaries, but had never heard of leprechauns or elves. We were exhausted by the time we got to sheep camp. We had walked 13 miles in two days. I had blisters on both feet. So did Mama. We were completely soaked and muddy. Eve and I fell asleep as soon as Skookum put the canvas down on the ground for our tent. Mama woke Eve and me up an hour later. She had cooked some nice little bannock cakes on the fire, and Louise and Skookum had gone into the forest to get some blueberries to sprinkle on top. Bon anniversaire, ma chouette, said Mama with a sweet smile. It was July 29th. Things had been so exciting that I had forgotten my birthday was coming up. I was nine years old. Suddenly, I remembered my birthday the year before. Mama, Papa, Eve, and I went to the circus, and then for a big dinner. That was when I felt the first raindrop. All of a sudden, I couldn't do anything except start to cry. I just lay down on our canvas ground sheet, put my hands over my face, and sobbed. Eve tried to give me a hug, but not even he could cheer me up.